Podcast. That's right. We're back, and we're with Ian Ashdown of SunTrackerTech.com. Yeah, we're going to have a fun conversation. Don't know exactly where it's going to go yet. I did a little bit of reviewing, but uh, before we go there, folks, we got to talk about the craziest people in lighting, Greg. TCP. Go to TCPI.com. What are they saying today, Greggy? Well, I think this is a topic we're going to get into, but it's horticulture lighting. They have an HTM series modular horticulture top light. It is lightweight, customizable design, supports flowering and growth stages of plant development. Again, we might be relying on Ian to help us more with that. A single unit of this durable fixture is 55C, and it delivers up to 612 moles per joule, I think. Greg, <laughs> <laughs> you, you did it. You did it. You PDF. made it. We'll Woo. learn more about it today. TCPI.com, of course, in the show notes. You click them, you go there, you go to the craziest people in lighting. We love those guys. Buy from them every day, actually. And, of course, proud members, long-time members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Yeah, I have my hat. I'm back. I found it. It was at the cottage. Sorry. So I got it back now. I wear it all the time. That's right. <coughs> go to NAILD.org. Get associated. Get educated. That's right. For right now, we have Ian Ashdown. What's happening, Ian? No. I'm just here waiting to go. Nice sunny day outside, as you can see. Hey. <laughs> so, Greg, do you want to fire this one off here for a bit? I know you like to prep up for these shows. This, this is an interesting one. I didn't know which direction we were going to go in. You started off. Yeah, I think we could. I guess that's really what it comes down to, Ian. We could go a lot of different directions. I was looking at your profile here, and what committee haven't you been on for the IES? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've been on a lot of them. <laughs> Tell, tell us your background, oh. if you can. Uh, I've been lighting since, let me go back here, 1979. I went to university and got graduated as an uh, electrical engineer, bachelor's in electrical, and uh, immediately went into uh, photography and became a professional photographer. Ended up uh, working in the morgue and uh, photographing dead bodies, which... Convince me that's got to be better things uh, to do than this for a living. And so I joined a, uh, a one-man uh, lighting uh, company, uh, 1979-80. And that's where I got my real interest in uh, architectural lighting design. Worked my way up through uh, various small companies. And then complete change of uh, direction about 19... Let's see, 1981, I joined a pulp and paper company as an electrical engineer specialized in lighting. That lasted six months before they laid off 2,000 electrical engineers in uh, one day. And I was the very first uh, to be called up because I'd only been there for six months. And I was walking out, they said, do you want a, uh, a two-week uh, job to carry you over because we can't offer you uh, severance? So, okay, fine. Well, uh, five years later, I was... Still in that job, I was uh, the number three electrical engineer on a $1 billion uh, transit uh, system for uh, Vancouver and the uh, 1986 uh, Expo uh, line, as they called it. So that, that gave me a, a lot of experience in electrical engineering and lighting. And from there, I went to uh, what's now Phillips Leader Light as their uh, scientist, uh, developed the photometric uh, laboratory equipment for them. and. Um, well, I did invent uh, the near-field uh, photometry, 
that's uh, still being used in the industry. You got a patent on that. And um, from that, they developed, I got an in interest in um, lane design uh, software. There was essentially none at that point. So I decided to start uh, writing my own uh, software. And that became uh, what is now Lang Analyst uh, AGI32 and the Loom Tools. And for a while there was the Lacasso Daylighting. So that's been a parallel side of my uh, business uh, career, being about 1997 uh, with them. I uh, left uh, Leolite and joined uh, TAR Systems. And we ended up uh, being almost immediately sued by Color Kinetics uh, for patent infringement. And I thank them very much for that because that launched my career into uh, both solid state lighting uh, research. And at the end of it, I'm now, I think it's path number 167 uh, in the lighting field. So it just goes on and on. So Everybody else looked upon it as an adversity. It was a $20 million lawsuit, and uh, it was only ended when uh, Philips uh, Lightning bought both uh, Color Kinetics and TIR uh, systems. And they took over the, uh, the royalty generation from all that uh, patent. Uh, and I think about all the other, about 400 patents between the uh, two companies. Uh, then 1990, um, Helped uh, co-found uh, Cool Edge uh, Lighting, and it was with them for uh, four years. Has developed uh, the uh, LEDs on the flexible plastic sheets, and at that time, also became tired of that uh, sort of uh, small, essentially small uh, projects of not too much you can do apart from developing the glues for the LEDs and whatnot. And I formed Some Tracker uh, Lighting with my uh, business partner. Both came from TIR systems originally, and we're now focusing on horticultural lighting as well as um, architectural lighting, uh, creating our software as a plug-in for a vector works, and that will bounce off into uh, entertainment uh, lighting, uh, real-time uh, on uh, desktops for lighting design, and also uh, we're into uh, ultraviolet disinfection uh, design software. So, 71 years, I've just started. I'm still busy. <laughs> That's great. You know, and, and we definitely want to get into what you're doing now, but I, I just wanted to back up a, a couple things. What, what is near-field photometry? You invented that, you said? Yeah. Yeah, that's so, uh, with the standard uh, photometry, you, in the lab, you step back uh, about 25 feet uh, with the help of a, a mirror to fold the light uh, path. And you measure the luminaire essentially as a point source of light. Even though it may be an eight foot long fluorescent luminaire, you still assume it's a point source. Well, that, that works if you're uh, doing as downlighting. Uh, back in uh, the uh, 1980s and 90s, uh, we were starting to develop the line design software and the uh, lights business was mostly indirect uh, fluorescent lighting, which uh, of course illuminated the ceiling. And in the visualization models created, that just showed up as hot spots at the center of the luminaires. So the idea is, well, we should really model this as a uh, an area light source, four foot long by six inches wide was most for their products. 
and so we used uh, rather than just using a photo sensor 25 feet away from the light fixture in the lab we used a video camera to take images of it and from several thousand images you can trace rays uh, back uh, from the images uh, to the light fixture and you can calculate the uh, the illuminance of any uh, surface any distance uh, from the uh, the luminary even though we didn't measure in the lab as long as you're outside the, the envelope of the fixture, you can uh, trace those rays and uh, reconstruct uh, how much light you're receiving at any point on the surface. So that gave us the ability to uh, give uh, very accurate uh, renditions in the uh, software. With the disadvantage, it required several uh, megabytes of memory for the file, which back in the 1980s was a bit larger than the typical IS. Uh, uh, LM63 file and certainly larger than any of uh, the, uh, the Windows computers at the time with four megabytes of memory you could handle. So it's still, well, it was, well, it'd be about another 15 years essentially before uh, it became used for modeling LEDs. Uh, it's now uh, formalized as uh, ISTM25 uh, for a near field. Uh, radiometry of LEDs. And it's used by most of the LED lighting manufacturers for optical design. It's uh, come a long ways. Wow. Uh, and then the lighting design software you mentioned too. Did you guys started that or you were part of that? You said something about it became AGI 32. Yeah. I, 1994, um, essentially as a hobby, I was asked by, um, John Wiley & Sons, a publisher, to write a book on uh, radiosity method for uh, lighting design. At that time, I'd written a three-page article for a computer, uh, a popular uh, computer magazine. And I said, sure, I'll write it. Well, that was 18 months of uh, teaching myself computer graphics because I really didn't have a clue. Uh, it became a 500-page book, which is uh, still available online for free. And the core of that, uh, about 200 pages of the book, was uh, code, which is still in uh, as the basis of AGI 32. Back in 1997, uh, when we uh, made the agreement, they, they had uh, AGI DOS, which was uh, still running under MS DOS. And so we developed it for Windows and have gone on from there for the full line of software. Okay, are you a billionaire? Because <laughs> I don't have the time. <laughs> no, because I—I I mean, uh, it seems like you got your fingerprints all over the whole industry, brother. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, and, and your your profile here is, is the the volunteering is more than the um, the work experience. I mean, you've been on so many different IES committees; it's it's crazy to list. But I want to change gears, if you don't mind, Greg. Um, uh -huh. I want to talk to you a little bit about the UVC play in lighting right now. Um, my first question to you is, I know that you're working on or you've developed a modeling for UVC germicidal certainty is what it says on the website here. Um, my first question to you is, are you excited about this for the lighting industry or is it another industry that should take this on? Oh, I am for the, uh, the lighting industry. But uh, a year ago, when the uh, pandemic uh, laid us all flat on our backs, 
I became interested in the the topic of uh, using uh, germicidal uh, lighting uh, to uh, inactivate uh, the virus. And at that time, the focus was almost entirely on uh, the radiation of surfaces, as we were busy wiping every surface down and whatnot, and uh, the World that Health ended, Organization. That, that, that ended up being totally wrong, by the way. It was, yeah. Yeah, like it, you, you, they couldn't have gotten it more wrong, actually. Yep. Yeah. Including the industry. So yeah. uh, Philips, uh, Signify, uh, for example, went running off and uh, designed fixtures and uh, invested a lot in uh, manufacturing. I think it was an eightfold increase in the um, the funding they put into their development of uh, the uh, low-pressure uh, mercury of vapor lamps. And the latest, uh, I think it was Leds Magazine, had an interview with uh, one of their executives, and they said, yeah, well, it didn't really work out. <laughs> so it's uh, the focus is now on, of course, on the aerosols. And with that, it's uh, the 220 nanometer uh, far UV generated by the uh, Zymer lamps, which are becoming in uh, focus. The, that uh, short wavelength is, uh, so far, is shown to be uh, much safer than the 254 nanometer that we're currently uh, used, which can cause horrible, uh, essentially sunburned eyeballs and skin. Mm-hmm. 222 nanometer is, uh, doesn't appear to have any effect on our uh, health. And so they're recommending it uh, for uh, whole space or whole room uh, radiation. Doesn't sound uh, too they, good, though, when they say radiation. I mean, uh, well, no, that, that's everybody worries when they see radiation. And uh, even the I was on the uh, the photobiology committee of the IES, and that was one of our topics of discussion. What do we call this? Because people get upset when they hear the word uh, irradiation or radiation. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, and they should be too. They, they then naturally you get upset. But let, let me let me throw something out at you about this. So I've, I've been following the news on this and what they're talking about in terms of and you know uh, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or whether it's tuberculosis or other airborne pathogens that passive air disinfection and better ventilation are the the really the the golden grail or whatever the holy grail of this and that you want to get the air either cleaned or you want to refresh the air in the room and that's how you prevent all manner of pathogens from um passing and that surface disinfection is really not low-hanging fruit it's something that is not going to really be a um a, a, a stopper or an ender of these types of viruses and bacterias and molds and funguses that are in the air and that um that, that and that this technology also has been around for a very very long time. Um, do you believe that that the lighting industry should really be pushing towards the the um, deployment of this technology in spaces across the world, indoor spaces across the world? I think it's going to be a collaboration between the uh, lighting design and the mechanical engineering, because it, it, there's two problems. If you um, if you look at the far UV it is capable of uh, disinfecting the air itself. Uh, it's really what we do now in hospitals, what they call upper room disinfection. They aim the ultraviolet radiation across the room and out of the line of sight of the uh, people within the room. And that's been used since the 1930s, uh, particularly in uh, tuberculosis, mm-hmm. tuberculosis wards. Mm-hmm. And to, so good, to good the, effect as well. 
A great effect yes. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Very effective. So yeah. with the uh, far UV, that could be uh, done throughout uh, an enclosed uh, space, whether it's a uh, an office space or uh, food courts or uh, theaters or whatnot. Uh, from the lane design perspective, uh, if you have the software to do it, you can model the uh, the distribution of the ultraviolet uh, within the volume of air. And from that, determine whether you have sufficient uh, levels to actually disinfect the air. The problem is that it, you have to bring mechanical engineers because the air is always going to be flowing and you need to know how long is uh, that air within the, the radiation uh, uh, field for disinfection. So uh, here's what I would say to that. Most renovations, most re like we, what we're talking about here is not new construction. We're talking about renovation, right? Which yeah. is interesting. So now you're into what Greg and I do. So the, a lot of the focus of the lighting industry is on and on these development tools is on new construction. But this is not where the problem is. The problem is worse because older buildings are not as ventilated as well as newer buildings are. They don't have that... HRVs or whatever that take the outside air and replace yep. it and all that sort of stuff that goes on in newer buildings. And so the older buildings are really where the attention lies. And I'll tell you this, most indoor renovations of lighting systems are not plotted, planned, or laid out in any AGI 32 or any other tool. Most nope. of them are just one for, hey, there's a light fixture there, take it out and put in an LED one or change the tubes to LED. And so I think you're going to see what we need to do is um, either we need to be able to have some standard rules that we work with and Phillips's catalog from 1985 has this they have average air circulation in a room and you need this many watts of UV per meters cubed and whatever there's some general rules do you feel like there is going to be a set of general rules that can apply for lighting distributors so that we can deploy this stuff in the field Ian? there's going to have to be I, I can't say way around it the problem is who sets the rules or who develops the rules more the point uh, I'll give you one of the examples, uh, the first uh, in-depth examinations of uh, COVID being spread by aerosols in a, uh, a restaurant in China. Yeah, I read that article which, I read uh, about that too, yeah. They measured they it. Yeah, but they they measured it and they modeled it, but it was only on one side of the, uh, the room where the air oh, was uh, flowing yeah. uh, between the inlet and outlet events. So unless we have uh, at least... Uh, a good set uh, database of uh, such rooms that we can uh, look at uh, for designs. It's going to be difficult to say, you know, you need so much, uh, so many cubic feet per minute airflow. Well, if it's turbulent airflow, are you getting the uh, the areas where you may not have that uh, mm -hmm. flowing fast enough? Sure. So. The the other interesting point, you know, if you're talking about COVID-19, I read that about that study in China. It was one restaurant where one person went in there with COVID-19 and 10 people came out with COVID-19. And it wasn't any of the people that were sitting close to the guy. It was people on the other side of the room that ended up getting infected with COVID-19 because of the way the air flowed in the room. The aerosol floated over and then it into their mouths and they got it. It was, it's an incredible thing if you want to look it up. But what's interesting to me is how out to lunch the government's particularly on Canada and Ontario have been with this because they're taking people that come in from the airport and they're taking all of them and they're putting them in these hotels for three days. And these hotels have do not have disinfection systems in the HVAC. And so people are actually getting COVID-19 at the hotel from other guests who have it through the ventilation yeah. in the hotel. 
And then the other, the, the other one I read, which was unbelievable, was they were doing the COVID testing outside originally, and then they moved it inside the hospital, okay? And they didn't have any UVC lighting, and, and they were cleaning everything, and they were wearing masks and all that, but people were going to get tested for COVID and actually getting COVID after being tested from the center, the COVID-19 testing center. And I thought that these things are, it's, it's so cheap and obvious if like a hospital's budget to have a place where you know people are going to go with COVID-19. If, if they don't have this yet, are we going to even be able to deploy it to the rest of the world? I mean, if they don't have it in those applications where it's absolutely so incredibly obvious to me to be an early adopter, a COVID-19 testing center, you should absolutely have passive air disinfection there to protect people, but they don't have it. I don't, how do we overcome these barriers, Ian? Uh, I, I still look at the, uh, the building codes that uh, we have to comply with and those take time to develop. Um, one of the remarkable things with the photobiology committee, when we uh, wrote the, uh, the COVID-19, essentially, edition of uh, all the product disinfection is that that whole thing was put together in a couple of months. Normally, on the committees I sit on, we talk about uh, two to five years to get a standard uh, completed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So incentive is a great thing, even if it kills you in the process. Mm -hmm. And I think that in terms of uh, lighting design, I think there's still going to be an opportunity for uh, lane designers, once uh, far UV is uh, uh, deployed uh, more than it is right now, the, the lamps are still quite expensive. I don't know if it's economically practical, but once they become available, you're still going to have to use uh, lane design software, variants of it to uh, predict the distribution of ultraviolet within the space. And then that becomes information for the mechanical engineers to uh, look at their uh, computer models, uh, computational fluid dynamics, CFD models, to calculate the airflow and see whether or not uh, it's going to meet uh, future building codes. Well, you know, they got a vaccine done in eight months. Um, yeah. You know, they uh, they talk about prevention and all this sort of stuff, but I think that, the, you know, to my message, if Nailed was a larger organization and we had the resources, Greg, Nailed would certainly be uh, lobbying the government's to have this technology because it's proven it works there's um and why not just default to over engineering in like in a COVID 19 testing center just smash a whole bunch of uvc f32 t8 you know 350 what and 354 nanometers and just cover the whole ceiling in a in a big wrap around it and blast the, the ceiling with uh, uvc light do all the vents and let it be. I mean, that would cost nothing. I mean, in, in comparison to the, the the problems they're trying to solve, there there needs to be more uh, awareness created either by the lighting industry or by the UVC industry because there's also a, a UVC industry that this technology is available, it's ready, it's proven, and it's worked for almost a hundred years. So why it's not being deployed is possibly negligence in my mind. Um, and the, especially if someone can, you know, can, goes to get tested or goes to this hotel, contracts COVID-19 and dies. I mean, it's, uh, 
it's there, it's ready to go, and I've been screaming this from the rooftops on the passive air and the active air disinfection from, from day one, especially if we go mercury lamps. The LED stuff, yeah, it needed to be tested. The other nanometers and all this sort of stuff, but mercury lamps were ready to go, and there's lots of stock too, Ian. Um, well, they're ready to go, but uh, you can't expose your skin to it. That's yeah, the that's problem. why they invert it. They put it on the ceiling, you put it upside down, and it shines on the ceiling. That's how it's... it's uh... and there's, there's, there's a problem. One study uh, done I'd like to point to is that the rule of thumb is uh, at ultraviolet uh, C wavelengths, reflectance of most architectural materials is 3 to 5%. Ooh. But Nurses uh, better put we, on some sunglasses or something. <laughs> well, we went back and looked at that information as part of the uh, photobiology committee, and I was doing my own work uh, for designing uh, UVC lighting uh, software. And the studies, uh, I say they, that reflectance comes from studies done in the 1920s. Hmm. Work has been done since then, except that one researcher <laughs> looked at ceiling tiles. And of course, you know, that's if you're going to have uh, indirect pictures, as we're seeing now, mm -hmm. uh, what's reflected in ceiling tiles? Well, it ranges from 3% to over 50%. Hmm. So if you calculate uh, the amount of uh, reflected uh, UVC being within safe limits based on 5% uh, reflectance, suddenly you've got 10 times the amount. Hmm. First thing that's going to happen is uh, your interior plants may start dying, hmm. and then people start complaining about uh, uh, itchy uh, eyes uh, as they get essentially sunburned uh, corneas and, uh, and skin rashes. So it can't be Mike's quite wrong. dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but they've been using it in these tuberculosis wards for decades yeah. and decades. Have they observed an, a negative impact to the the staff or the patients in those wards? Uh, they generally recommend that, uh, that once they installed it, that they test the system, made sure that uh, there's not excess amount of UV. And the pictures are designed since they only let emit about, I think it's about 5% of the light because they're very heavily shielded to mm. create a very narrow beam. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't bounce off the ceiling. That goes the opposite wall, which generally has a lower reflectance and absorbs it. Mm. So it's generally safe, but uh, every now and then uh, some manufacturer screws up. They mount the picture upside down and the beam of light's directed downwards rather than uh, slightly upwards. And so people walking uh, through a space can get it. Uh, People's in hospital wards when they're looking at the ceiling uh, all day long, lying in bed, uh, they're at risk. So it's it's great technology, but it it still has its risks. So when you're doing the, so you have a design software um, that is going to calculate how effective it is. What does that look like? Is it going to say at, at this level it's a, this color, and then it goes down to a different color as you go down, or across the room, or I'm trying to visualize it? I've got an experimental version of uh, what essentially is AGI-32 that I work with. And rather than uh, measuring the, or predicting the, uh, the luminance or illuminance of uh, services within the room, we have uh, what's called uh, spherical radiance uh, meters, uh, virtual meters that we can put throughout a space, thousands of meters within the volume of air and then to measure the ultraviolet radiation that, that comes at uh, those points in space from all directions. So that was originally designed for uh, HVAC uh, systems where they have ultraviolet uh, lamps inside the, uh, the air handling units and don't have to worry about human exposure, but it can also be used for the far UV. 
I'm presenting a paper on that uh, next week at the Nultviolet uh, conference. And, and that's the committee that you're still active in. You guys are still developing things, obviously, as you go right now. Yeah. Nice. Can I take it in another direction, Greg, now? Cause That's what we do. <laughs> we did, we did the UBC. I was so confident. Now I'm like, oh, no. I was so confident. Hey, you either go in your position and going, hey, what's all the big deal? Oh. <laughs> well, I haven't, I haven't done anything in the space, really, in terms of that. I've been just waiting to know uh, and learning, you know, for a while. So I was getting excited there, but um, I guess we have to continue to observe and wait here. Um let me talk to you a little bit about horticultural lighting uh, next. Yeah. So do you, so it's interesting that, that there's a bit of a, not a bit, starting with cannabis, which was the sort of the um, first, I think it, crudely on one of our live streams was called the porn of lighting, of horticultural lighting, uh, the <laughs> pornography of horticultural lighting, because it was the first thing that everybody went after with this. Are we in the early beginnings of a horticultural, indoor horticultural revolution to bring um, that? Is, is that what's happening right now in your mind, Ian? Uh, we're about three years into it, really. Okay. Uh, I first became interested in it. Uh, I got a, uh, an email from a lighting analyst, uh, the AGI32 uh, company. Uh, they had a client in Colorado saying that... Uh, they wanted to ask some questions about uh, the design of lighting they were doing in a warehouse. And when I asked uh, what they're doing, they says, well, we can't tell you, but the light level is about 10 times. And as soon as they said 10 times, it's, oh, cannabis, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of a giveaway. Mm -hmm. And uh, that got me going in horticulture. And so I, uh, going from absolutely zero, uh, I've dug into it over the, uh, the following year. And uh, at the same time, the LED uh, manufacturer, uh, horticultural LED fixtures were improving you know, leaps and bounds going from the, the old uh, just uh, blue and red LEDs or blurples they call it uh, and learning that uh, you require a green light to help the plant photosynthesize and for the uh, plant to develop and that led me into a, a study of uh, the effects of uh, the different uh, spectrum of light, spectra of light on uh, plants. And we ended up hiring a botanist uh, for our company uh, for uh, about six months who prepared the, what became the, uh, the basis of uh, what is now uh, ISRP 4521. And that's the IS recommended practice horticultural lighting. So 90-page uh, document on uh, horticultural lighting that's going to be published, uh, hopefully within next month. So, you know, well, you know, you know what's interesting about botanists? When I, botanists only study pretty plants. Yep. I, I, re I read an article about that as well, where they're talking about botanists, and it's like there's if a, the prettier the plant is, the more study there is on it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the model plant is uh, Arabidopsis. And it's a, in Europe, it's a roadside weed. Oh. It's, it's easy to grow, but uh, it has been characterized to death. That's <laughs> the go. best way of putting it. Let me ask you about the, the going on from there. So the difference between horticultural lighting, so general lighting is like, um, what would be the word? Is a fixed asset in infrastructure, right? Turn the lights on, they work. Yep. Maybe you control them or whatever. But in horticulture, you're talking about a um, actually part of a manufacturing process, 
right? So you're, or you're, 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 you're um, and so letting distributors are a little bit hesitant and contractors to get into that space because it seems more like um, you're kind of more, you know, doing a engineering for a result rather than task lighting. It's actually what is happening is the light being on the plants. It's fundamental. Um, your tools here could uh, on uh, uh, for horticultural lighting. Does that put the power in the hands of lighting people who are LCs and lighting lighting distributors to be able to help deploy this technology in the field and give us some a, a heads uh, an advantage? Yeah, the uh, the software we've developed, uh, Greenhouse Designer, it allows you to design the lighting for both uh, greenhouses and uh, vertical farms. The um, Initial version will just be with the supplemental electric lighting, so we're lighting the greenhouse at night essentially. But we're taking what uh, used to be lighting analyst uh, Lacasso daylighting software, and have adapted it to uh, model uh, daylight in greenhouses, and that becomes a whole a different field because uh, horticulturalists, uh, growers, you name it, they have no means whatsoever of calculating uh, how much light they get inside the greenhouse. So we're taking all the expertise that the IS uh, and uh, architectural lighting designers have developed over the years for uh, day lighting design and applying that to horticulture. The, um, is it by plant type? Can you select the type of plant and then enter your, yep. your spaces and it, it'll, it'll tell you what type of lighting you need and how much and how many fixtures and all that? Yes, it is. Um, I think there's over 100 plants that we list in uh, RP45. That document, uh, there was 26 of us on the committee, and uh, it's about an equal match of uh, lane designers uh, with horticulture expertise and uh, the horticulturists themselves. And the focus was on this document has to be for lane designers, and it's to provide them with a means of communicating uh, with uh, the horticulturalists, with the growers, the greenhouse operators, so they have a common language, understand what they're doing. For lighting designers, uh, I think the if there is low-hanging fruit, it's the uh, building atria, that uh, your living walls and the uh, the plants brought indoors and uh, whatnot into the uh, the hotel lobbies and uh, the the malls. I don't know any malls left these days, but uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that's where uh, they can start the conversation because it also involves lighting for people. I was going to say, uh, will, they, will they grow back, Greg and I's <laughs> hair? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got my hair pulled back. If I let it go, it's, it's down to here now. <laughs> I've had a haircut a year and a half. Oh, man. Nice. All right. So so that's, a, that's actually, I think that's what um, most lighting people are afraid of is, is, is that, you know, it's so lighting is always important, but you can, I just, you know, there's no maxes, right. In lighting, you just put more light if you need to, for a general area, just overlight it. That's generally the way most people go about this business as crude as that is to say, but with horticultural, so you're able to select by plant. So I can say my customer wants to grow strawberries and we select strawberries in a drop-down menu, and then you enter your details like you would in AGI 32, and boom, you're going to get fixtures. They're telling you how many fixtures and what color, what. Yeah, that's when we were approaching it. That, uh, the other that's issues incredible. is that um, plants, uh, you can vary the uh, spectrum as the plants are growing to encourage them to, uh, to flower and whatnot. 
Prinsettias, as example, I used, they used to use uh, incandescent lamps and they had put them into a greenhouse at night and turn on uh, low levels of incandescent lighting in the infrared or near infrared and those uh, lights would either uh, advance or uh, delay the flowering of the plants. So you can use knowledge of that uh, if you design a lighting system, working with the, uh, the, the growers, uh, when are you going to have your uh, crops? When you want to bring them to market? What uh, what are they? And then there's uh, there's endless amounts of information in academia on what uh, uh, color spectra you need to be able to do that, and uh, how much light you need uh, for the day. What they call the daily light integrals. So it's it looks like a new language, but uh, when you get down to it, uh, the uh, Photosynthetic photon flux density, as they call it. Well, that's just equivalent to our illuminance. And uh, the um, photon uh, intensity is equivalent to our luminous intensity. So conceptually, they're the same things. It's just there's a lot more information you have to have available at your fingertips. And that's why we, we wrote this document to provide all one place rather than telling people there's hundreds of different documents to go through. You got Greg really excited. I can tell. <laughs> I saw it in his eyes. Uh, what do you got, Greg? Eric? <laughs> uh, the PP, so PPF, photosynthetic photon flux. Yep. These are numbers that lighting people should eventually know. And it's going to be like this plant needs this much PPF. This one needs that. Is that am I Greg is going to be swinging on? through the trees with a knife in his teeth <laughs> any day now, telling you on this stuff. <laughs> Essentially, yes. It's. Um, if, if you look at a greenhouse, uh, say from an architectural lighting design perspective, you go, "Yeah, no, it, it's uh, several uh, dozen acres of uh, rows of high pressure sodium, or these days uh, LED lighting. What well, is there to design? But it, it's knowing what the plants require, the light levels, uh, maximum minimum light levels they expect, uh, how long the light has to be on, whether it can be dimmed, uh, how much uh, light you need." Uh, in the winter months to uh, complement uh, the daylight so that the, uh, oh, it's, uh, as I was saying, you, you can always fit in more light, but uh, for uh, a grower, when uh, you're trying to provide as much light as daylight, your energy costs go skyrocketing. So you want to minimize the amount of electrical power you're using. So again, there, you, you may want to provide low levels of light simply that uh, for a longer period of time, such that you don't rack up your demand charges and your electricity. And these are all sorts of issues that uh, most uh, growers, uh, if they're not experienced, they may not uh, appreciate when they encounter it and get their first electric bills. So again, lighting uh, designers can uh, help with that. You know, it's advising you know, what to do. Greg, um, I know you're excited to start premier horticultural lighting um, <laughs> any minute now. That sounds like a very profitable, what do you say, niche? What do you say? I say niche. You say yeah. niche? It niche, sounds yeah. like, because the more value you're giving to the customer, the rarer the knowledge is, the more value you're giving, the, the more you charge. It's all it is. And um, to me, this seems like such a wonderful play for distributors looking for another angle or contractors out there that are listening to this designers. What a wonderful play. Greg, you got anything more in horticultural before we go to the next? Yeah, uh, just the Kelvin temp. So a lot of traditionally it was high pressure sodium, which we know the Kelvin temperature of that. Um, and with LED lighting, you can change it and do all that. How much does that factor into the enhancements? That are LED better because they can change Kelvin temperatures easily? 
or does that not really matter as much in horticulture? Uh, the the CCT, the correlated color temperature, doesn't really matter. Uh, that that's a visual aspect. Um, plants, the uh, you often see the uh, plots of the absorption of chlorophyll, and it shows uh, peats at 450 nanometers and roughly 660 nanometers. So the argument is, if we uh, provide uh, just uh, those two uh, narrow bands of light from our LEDs that maximize the photosynthesis, and we don't need any other colors. Well, the problem with that argument is that uh, when you look at those uh, absorption characteristics of chlorophyll, that's what the chlorophyll dissolved in the uh, solution, such as alcohol. In the plant, you have a whole bunch of other, uh, what they call accessory uh, pigments. So as, as a result of that, uh, the plant can photosynthesize uh, using light anywhere from about 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers. And that's why the, um, the HBS lamps work so well, even though they produce yellow light. We still don't know uh, how the plants actually work in the photosynthesis. They haven't identified the uh, the photopigments which absorb that uh, light, but it clearly works. So uh, that's why HPS has been successful. But they're now finding with uh, the LED lighting that uh, really, if you have uh, well, either a warm or cool white, or even the green LEDs as well as the red and blue, that uh, it encourages a plant to produce uh, the chemicals that uh, we experience as uh, the taste of the plant. So improves our taste in tomatoes, for example. Get out of here. No. They're called secondary metabolites. The plants so produce... when I go to the store, I go to the grocery store, you see hothouse tomatoes. Those are the ones that come from greenhouses, right? Hothouse yep. or whatever. You can go to the guy, look at the little tag on there and say, oh, it's Greg Garrick Farms in, in you know, whatever, Patuka, Minnesota or wherever. You can go and say, you want your tomatoes to be, taste better, brother? <laughs> that sounds like such a scam. I mean, just saying it. Are you serious? Like, I can't believe you could say something like that to a straight face to a farmer. Come on. All right. Not only are we going to grow more tomatoes here, we're also going to use less energy, and um, we're going to make the food taste better. That's like, you can't. How could you not sell that guy that system? I know. That's like deadly. uh, Well, I I can give you an example. This comes from, I think it was 2015, Uh, one of the largest tomato growers in Ontario. they were growing the, the big uh, tasteless uh, beefsteak uh, tomatoes. Yeah, they and taste they like nothing. Tastes like yeah. emptiness, yeah. So they, they did a trial run uh, with uh, just the red and blue LEDs in the fixture. I won't name the manufacturer. And they spent several million dollars. I was told six million, but I never Oh, I need some that. millions of dollar deals too. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> they installed the fixtures. And then, uh, but then they decided they're going to grow a different variety. I think it was cherry tomatoes or something. And the plants simply didn't thrive. So they had to rip out uh, all of the, uh, the fixtures and replace them. Sorry. And, you know, <laughs> it's another yeah. six million, bud. <laughs> yep. So, yes, it, uh, certainly with lettuce, uh, they, there's endless studies now showing that uh, if you add uh, green light, you can control, uh, particularly with the, the red lettuce varieties, how much of the, the anthocyanins, which are uh, some of the, the pigments, photopigments in the plant that... They determine the, the color. So you can just provide red and blue light and uh, know that you can grow as quickly and as large as possible. But if you want to control the quality of it, then you have to uh, work with the uh, the color spectrum. 
You can be a horticultural Frankenstein. Make whatever you want. Sounds like essentially. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, Greggy, this is going long. I I got more to talk about with Ian. We got fifteen minutes left on this one, but yeah, I, yeah. Um, you want to move it up? Okay, so circadian. Okay. Yeah. Now I've been saying I've talked to a lot of people about circadian and um, circadian stimulus and all that sort of stuff. I have a question for you. If you don't restore natural darkness at the end of the night when you're going to... Oh, let me ask you this question first. All the gains of circadian are from better sleep, right? Uh, mostly, yes. Like everything they talk about, more alertness, that's just because you're sleeping better at night. You know, it's like that. that's really... All, that, all we have to worry about is the sleep. So if you have a circadian lighting system and you don't restore natural darkness at night and, and get your phone out of your face and not have blue light and all that sort of stuff, you're basically wasting all of the gains of a circadian lighting system. Yep. It's, See? Well. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I, I always get upset with these studies when I, I see that uh, they, they do the circadian uh, rhythm uh, lighting studies at the universities and say, we took uh, these students and uh, we uh, uh, brought them in and we tested, we ran it uh, for uh, 12 hours or something, here are results. So my question is, what were those uh, kids doing in the uh, 48 hours before? Were they mm. out partying? Were they sleeping? It, the trouble with the circadian rhythms, it, it operates on a scale of hours to days rather than uh, the, uh, the milliseconds that we deal with with human vision. So uh, you've got issues like that. Um, other issues, uh, one paper I have shows that uh, individual variability to uh, circadian-based uh, lighting, you know, how much uh, blue light is 50 to one. And it appears to be random. It's just some people uh, respond to the light, the others don't. Well, we had a joke, I mean, uh, that, you know, these lighting systems could be racist because maybe they're <laughs> going to be built for, you know, uh, people in Sweden but if, you know, someone from the a southern climate goes to people somewhere in Sweden, is it's going to hurt them. Who knows how it's going to work based on, you know, your, your, where your ancestry is originally from and if, if that has impact on this. Um, you know, because there's been a lot of the news race, recently about medical devices being calibrated for, I don't know if you read oh, yeah. about this. Racial about, bias in medicine. Yeah, yep. yeah about the, the, the little thing that measures your heart pressure or something. And it, it doesn't see, it doesn't work as well with... Um, uh, you know, darker skin tones. And so people are, you know, at that small percentage across the whole thing, it ends up that some people go home and they shouldn't go home from the hospital. Um, so I, I think the lighting industry needs to look at this really carefully. Do you think there is a real legitimate play in the circadian space right now? Uh, I, I I wrote an article on it, uh, LDNA, it. Uh, yeah, the engineer's perspective, and uh, I'm not... I think the approach that the lighting industry has been taking to it so far has just been too simplistic. Certainly when we take, uh, we say that, okay, just uh, use uh, the manufacturer's uh, luminance-based uh, data and uh, just uh, take the spectrum and multiply by this and you, you have it. Well, have you ever tried asking a manufacturer for the spectral power data uh, for their fixtures? You can't get it. Yeah, I, I, I used to I, I used to work for Phillips Lighting. Uh, it's two thousand nine. Uh, I was doing research uh, on uh, theatrical uh, luminaires, and I needed the uh, spectra of uh, some of their uh, Phillips lamps 
uh, from the uh, that division. And so, stupid me, I just sent an email uh, off to my uh, counterpart in the division, and that email got waylaid, and I was notified that uh, it was likely I was going to be fired. Yeah. What? <laughs> it, it's a big no-no. No-no, you can't have that information. That is proprietary information. Yes, you are a Phillips Lighting researcher, but no, we can't allow you to have it. And the uh, breach of protocol and all the rest. And uh, that. Uh, How dare you, I, Ian Ashdown? Essentially. <laughs> but even today, uh, if you ask a manufacturer, as a, a lighting designer, okay, I need to do circadian based lighting. Give me your spectrum power distribution. No, <laughs> it's proprietary information. But I have the spectrology here. I can measure it. No, we can't give it to you. Wow. <laughs> or if you go to another example, if you go to a Design Light Consortium, they have their listings for their horticultural luminaires. And the only uh, way you can get the, uh, the spectra of those pictures, and that's essential for horticultural lighting, is they have these little uh, uh, tiny 300 by 300 pixel images of the spectra. You can't do anything with that. And yet you were told we need it for design purposes. And it uh -oh. just goes on. DLC's in trouble again, Greg. <laughs> DLC's in trouble again. That's, uh, you know, we, uh, we've been after them for, well, not after them. Good people there. Don't get me the wrong way. But they have a, just oh, yeah. a, a job that's so crazy that, especially when you're getting into, like horticulturalists, you know, you got to be careful when you're getting into that space. You know, I have a question for you. So um, I sell a lot of HPS horticultural lamps, okay? And uh, there was a certain manufacturer that had come out with uh, different 400-watt HPS lamps. One was, you know, the road king. The other one was the sports king. Then there was the horticultural king. And then there was another one. And then all of a sudden, they, all those skews are gone. And now there's just the king master, which covers all those skews, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, like, how, you know, I've been in this industry long before LED. How do you tell the sizzle from the steak in lighting? I mean, when when does the marketing stop and the science begin, Ian? That's like with your you're not even allowed to see the spectral power distribution when you work there. Like, there's so many claims around this human circadian. I am the host of the Get a Grip on Lighting. I got the co-host over there. We can't really at this point say where the marketing stops and where the science starts. Do you know where it is with human centric or circadian? Oh, I, I still think it, it's it's more, I hate to say it, uh, for what I see, it's more marketing than it is uh, science. <laughs> when I look yeah. at uh, uh, the well lighting, uh, or excuse me, well building uh, standard uh, using the equivalent uh, melanopic lumens or uh, UL uh, with uh, came out of... Uh, Lighting Research Center, their circadian stimulus. At the base, the base of it all, it's just uh, they're saying that uh, we measure these values and we're okay. Just design to this and you're fine. Well, okay, but for example, the uh, circadian stimulus, if you work it out, uh, the light levels are three times what are recommended for uh, visual applications. And you can't design to that. Or if you, as you saw from that article, wrote from LDNA that uh, you uh, specify a fixture, but if you don't know the spectral power distribution, the, uh, the CS metric or the EML 
can vary by, uh, was it uh, two to four times? You have no idea. Manufacturer won't tell you what it is, so you can't specify it. If you do measure it with a sample fixture, the contractor is coming, come, going to come along and says, oh yeah, I put in equal. <laughs> oh, thanks. So what, you, can't this, you, you don't like value engineering when it comes to this space, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, Ian, you said you had a 167 patents. Are they all lighting? Um, for the most part, yes. Uh, what, what, what are you, like Thomas Edison or something, bud? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Does anybody Edison, Edison have more in lighting? I don't know. I, I think I'm I'm up in the, the top 200 uh, people of the uh, number of patents uh, worldwide. But it's... I, I, I don't look at it that way. It, uh, what I uh, try try and do is that, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I prefer to hire uh, student interns rather than university before they've had a chance to be polluted by uh, working in industry. And, <laughs> hey, I'm honest. I can afford to be. Yeah. No can, nobody can fire me now. <laughs> but... Uh, what I, what I said is that uh, I want you to be creative. You spent four or five years in university. Uh, you got your master's. You've been there seven years or something. And all of that time, you've been told that here's the information. Learn it. I want you to say, look, this information says, I don't believe this. Prove it to me. And in the process, you need to go out and you need to learn about things that have no, no application whatsoever apparently to what you're doing but it's knowledge and you can apply it i'll, I'll give you one example it's my my own work um, when i was a teenager i used to collect uh, butterflies and had an interest in that and that went on uh, about 30 year gap before i was working with uh, lethal light and i had this interest i thought well there's a blue morpho butterfly which has these iridescent blue wings why is it not like a um, diffraction grating where you can see that blue light regardless of the viewing angle? And so that led me off on a path and uh, I ended up uh, with two uh, co-workers uh, developing uh, holographic diffusers. We had to build our own uh, holography lab to develop the uh, technology to do it. But uh, the nice thing about these diffusers, unlike a, a typical diffuser, they're uh, they only absorb about 20% of the light, and you can control the uh, the angle of diffusion. So you can uh, diffuse the light in only one direction. It can maybe diffuse it two or three degrees in one direction, but 90 degrees in the other. Uh, Philips Lee Light, last I've heard, they've taken that uh, invention, and uh, they've made somewhere between $1,500 million in sales of the product. So it's just having this curiosity and... Uh, trying to learn about other uh, fields. I have interest in uh, astronomy and uh, uh, various uh, fields of physics. The only thing I don't touch is uh, chemistry. I've never understood that. That's my brother's field. <laughs> but uh, <Family> affair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apart from that, uh, uh, that gives me most of the ideas for my inventions. It just, you know, what have people done here? Uh, what can I do that they haven't thought of? Because I, I uh, I've learned so much more. I've come to, I, let me just interrupt you there because I, I'm dying to say something about this. The word science has completely lost its meaning in the last year. Okay. So, um, yes. 
you know, what the science they're talking about, in, especially in Ontario where I live, is more of the political variety than yep. the, um, uh, the, you know, they're, they're looking at polls and such things. But I think what it, it, the host of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, not a, not a researcher, not, I have a patent. I have one U.S. patent. I, do, I am an inventor. It cost me a fortune. It's a trophy. But it's an expensive trophy. Okay. But I think people should really understand the difference between academia, peer-reviewed, science, and inventions. Those things are not really... Inventions and that are not really that related to academia. Um, nope. You know, most uh, inventions in progress in the realm of science comes from the fringes, from people on the outside of academia. And science, by its very nature, cannot be peer-reviewed. Original thought cannot be peer-reviewed. Original ideas, original discoveries, that's the whole nature of it. And so people have to understand when people are, are saying science, what they really mean is academia. And when they're, you know, they don't really mean, you know, people discovering and inventing things and coming up with all these different things. That's not what, what peer-review is. Peer review is like, a, and I don't mean to be overly critical here, but is a bunch of um, tenured professors agreeing with one another over and over again. Precisely. You, you obviously saw the same LinkedIn posting I did about that. Yes, there's a one on, I saw it on Instagram. It's everywhere on the internet. But that fellow yep. made a great point. He's saying, you have to get out in the field. You have to go experience the world, you know? And, you know, it, it, that's... That guy, and we'll put that video post, uh, Scott, remind me, we'll link to that as well. That's all over the internet. And this, I, these ideas need to be separated in people's heads. Can I go one more, Greg? I know we're coming up to the hour, but I want to ask him about one more thing, okay? I'm very passionate about the, the, the issue of the restoration of natural darkness, okay? And yep. <clears throat> I believe that the lighting industry has made a tragic error in the last 10 years. Um, we've reintroduced Flickr. We've uh, massively increased light uh, trespass. I spoke to a fellow in India um, who's 17 years old, and his village went from having a beautiful night sky to being totally light polluted in his lifetime, and he's only 17 years old, okay? Um, I spoke to him about that. If the lighting industry, out, so we're going to go outdoors, outdoor electric light at night. If the focus of the lighting industry was to... Uh, um, be 100% on the restoration as much as possible of natural darkness. Wouldn't it solve all the other problems in the lighting industry? Like where to put controls, how to use controls, what should controls do? Um, you know, bird migrations, animal migrations, light trespass. If we just took the industry and focused it 100% on the restoration of natural darkness wherever possible, and then iterations of that by application out, do you think that that overriding should be the overriding focus of the lighting industry for outdoor electric light? Uh, but about that way, yes. I, I'm reminded of going back to my youth uh, a couple of millennia ago. My parents <laughs> always tell me, turn off the damn lights. We can't afford the power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These days, I'd like to say, turn off the damn lights. We don't need all that light out there. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what is with... Uh, with outdoor lighting, we've gone from HPS, for the most part, to LED. The minimum amount of uh, increase in light pollution you get, if you have the same amount of number of lumens uh, uh, being produced, is 50%. And it goes up, I think, about 200% uh, in terms of the light pollution. That That's just as, as we perceive it visually. So we've lost ground there. 
the only way we can gain it back is to turn the fixtures off when people aren't around. What's the point of having uh, lighting for, quote, security uh, in a park if there's uh, nobody there? Uh, what's the point of uh, lighting up office towers all night uh, long? Uh, I'm reminded of uh, those photos we saw when Houston was out without power, mm. and yet the office towers were still lit up 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. we, we need to have a, a more of a, uh, a focus on uh, how we're using the light rather than just uh, how much light do we provide. I think the EPA should should list... Wasted electric light at night is hazardous waste, and and <laughs> that would work. Yeah, I, I'm not kidding you. But you think about the like people are scrambling for applications for controls inside the interior space, and there's like this. You know, the, we we talked to um, PNNL about this, and they're studying these systems and they're observing all manner of problems with commissioning and this kind of stuff. But to me, the resources for controls and outdoor lighting are so obvious. It's like you could have multiple Kelvin temperatures. The police call the town. Hey, turn up the lights at the corner of 15th Avenue and 22nd Street. We need to do an investigation. There's so many different ways that you could use it. There's a bird migration. We're going to shut the lights on and turn the Kelvin temperature down and lower the look. There's so many different avenues to really deploy control so effectively in the outdoor lighting space that yep. it, it, it should be the restoration of dark, natural darkness should be the focus of the lighting industry in outdoor electric light period and that everything would cascade from that down and you'd see like the dlc should this is should be a mandate um yeah well i've i i spoke at uh was it uh light fair 2015 on the topic uh, i think called the topic giving light that we should look upon lighting as uh, something that uh, we control rather than just it being there Mm -hmm. The example it gave, uh, I think it's even more appropriate these days, is that almost everybody has uh, their smartphone with them when they go outdoors at night. Why not have an app on there that as you go for a walk, for example, through a park, it uh, determines, okay, you're here. I've turned the lights on. No, you're gone. Turn them off. So it's controlled by the people rather than just uh, being provided as a, a service, which only the only service provides is to uh, disrupt the lives of uh, nighttime animals. You know, I heard a quote from a politician once, and this is why I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this hazardous waste thing with outdoor electric light. And he said, the sign of intelligent society is the management of hazardous waste. If you, <laughs> like, if you're, if you're burying hazardous waste in the ground or dumping things in your water and whatever, you're stupid beyond belief. Like, there's just, it's, that is the absolute sign of um, intelligence is like, where are you putting your, oh, let's put barrier garbage in the ground. You know, and, and let it drain. Like, it, it, it's so incredible the things that that humans do throw away. You know, the, the, we could really change. The lighting industry is in the best position right now because if we if we grab onto this, Ian, it will create massive amounts of revenue for the lighting industry. This is not something yep. to shy away from. This is something to run at whole hog because that means every outdoor light is back in play. Yep, I agree. Folks. We made it to the end. Ian, you got to come on again. I could talk to you for hours, brother. Wow, that was... <laughs> that, unfortunately. I know. I, it's, you know, it's... I uh, hope to meet you one day as well. Um, but if you made it this far, Greg, you got to get crazy with me here. Get crazy because we're going to go to tcpi.com, <laughs> the craziest people in lighting. What do they got, Greg? 
We touched on it today a little with their holder culture light. They have their HTM series modular up to 2.6 moles per joule, industry leading efficiency. I learned a little bit about that. And they even write on here PPF of 1224, 1836, or 2448. Those are pretty big numbers. I think it means something good. Check it out. <laughs> Go to tcpi.com. I know Greg's going to run out and look up all the greenhouses and, and uh, indoor farming factories in Minnesota right now, and he's going to start hitting them up. But if you made it to the end with us, I know that I speak on behalf of Greg and Ian and that thank you and uh, our hearts go out to you guys. We love you guys, all those people in the Get a Grip on Lighting World. But if you haven't joined Nailed, you're going to be out soon. We're not going to let anybody to listen anymore if you, have, if you don't join Nailed. Go to naild.org. Thanks for listening.